On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we revisit some past episodes where we receive some amazing advice from entrepreneurs around startups. Now, this advice can either make or break your startup, depending on whether you use it or ignore it. Now, I got some other information for everyone. We're right about to announce some exciting news for the podcast. Everyone should find out in the coming weeks. But until then, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Basically, like too much stuff for a founder to think about. So how should a founder, what should they be focusing on when they're just starting or growing a company? That's a great question. Um, a lot of my clients get stuck in that exact situation. They're focusing on their widget, whatever it is, product or service. And they need to focus on the widget in order to be able to build it, design it, manufacture it, and then market and sell it. The difficulty is that they have to be able to be in the details of the tactics and the good founders and the good CEOs, doesn't matter whether it's a startup or a bigger company that's looking to expand, they need to be able to move between strategy and tactics easily. And I've found that most founders are stuck in one or the other. Many founders are engineers, right? They came up with a fabulous idea and they have something that's amazing and they can talk about all aspects of it and how much it weighs and the color and what PMS colors on it and how does it work and how much power does it use and all those kinds of things. Those are the details. They need to also be able to get above the details and deal as we were talking about a couple of minutes ago with the strategy components. There are also CEOs and founders that are the reverse. They are the strategy people and they come into the office every single day with a new idea or two or three or four. And in that case, there's a situation where the team looks at what they're doing and says, wow, they just came up with all these ideas, but what happened to the ideas that they came up with two, three, four days ago? So that, that's where that all fits in. It needs to be taken into account when you're looking at strategy, compelling case for customers and how you run the business. So wait, how does a founder know or CEO that this strategy is even going to work? Uh, that's, that's probably the biggest place that companies fail when they're starting. When you develop a new product or service, and I'm going to use product from now on, but service can be substituted. When you develop a new product, you have an idea of what this product is going to do. And hopefully you've got the three C's. You have a compelling case for customers and you are solving a problem that either is known by the majority of the population or that may not be known, but you know is there and your thing is going to solve it. The iPhone is that example. People weren't even aware that there was a problem with cell phones until the iPhone came out and then they realized, wow, I can do email and text and all these other things navigate on my phone. So really important. But the key piece then that comes in is is the business viable? In other words, 
can you do everything you need to do with this business and return a bottom line profit and return on investment to whomever has invested in the company, be it yourself putting your own money in to start the catch-up company that we were talking about, or be it a product where uh, you've got investors coming in and you're trying to grow it very, very large, a billion dollar total available marketplace kind of thing, something like that. So that has to be taken into account. The piece then that needs to be done is once you've got your strategy, you need to build what I call as a strategic financial planning model. Some people call it a financial model. I like strategic planning because by definition, the strategy must be incorporated into the financial model and the financial model must relate to the strategy. So that as you put those two things together, strategy and financial model, they're influencing each other. So to know that the business will work, you have to build what's called a bottoms up financial model, which means you are building the model based on individual units that you're selling. It's relatively common for a startup company to build a financial model from top down. That means for the ketchup example, again, um, they look at the marketplace and they see that there is this many bottles of ketchup sold in their geographic area per year. And it's valued at this many dollars. And they think based on the quality of their ketchup and what they've got that they can get, let's just say 5% of that market within five years. So they take a percentage of the revenues for that product, multiply by 5%, and there they go. They have their revenue number. And then they put their cost of goods sold, what it's going to cost them to manufacture that ketchup including the direct product costs, the indirect product costs, labor, shipping, any kind of licensing that's required, taxes, all those kinds of things. And then there's SG&A, sales, general, and administrative, which includes marketing and maintenance and operations and all that. Then they come up with a number. And that financial model may be, let's just say 25 or 30 lines uh, in, an, in a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. That kind of model is great for checking whether your assumptions are okay. But it would never work to really look at a business strategy and let you determine, is this really going to work? Uh, and it will never work for raising money, capital from either venture, angel, or PE, private equity investors. For that, you need a bottoms up model where you're going to look at how many bottles of ketchup can you sell in each geographical area for each week at each farmer's market and you build from there. And how many people do you require to do that? Wow, I need this many people at my booth to sell it. I need this many people at the back end packaging it. I need this kind of sales and marketing, this many bodies, this much marketing and sales cost to do it, this much publicity. And you literally build from the ground up. That kind of a model will let you then assess whether your strategy will work. So let's say you build the model and you realize, wow, um, this business isn't profitable as it currently exists. It's not profitable for year one or year two, and it's not profitable for year three, four, or five. So the financial model at that point tells you, you either need to change your strategy or you need to do something else with the business, including not start it, right? That happens some, businesses fail, majority of startup businesses do, and it's because the financial modeling wasn't done well up front to tell the, uh, the founder, look, the strategy you've got probably won't work. So let's go ahead and do something different. 
So that's the way you know whether a strategy is going to work. And of course, no has quotes around it. A financial model's forecast. Uh, we're, we're doing our best to forecast what's going to happen. And the financial model then allows you to forecast what you think will happen and how you're going to deal with what happens going forward. So it's an integral part of the strategy. You must have strategy. You must also have the strategic financial planning model. Now, your company today, you're working with startups to Fortune 100 companies. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing working with these companies and how is it different working with a startup and working with a huge conglomerate? The startups are, are very interesting in that usually they're entrepreneurs, one, two, three, four, five people, sometimes more, but most of the time it's that small. They're usually very knowledgeable in one area and maybe not so knowledgeable in many others like business in some cases or marketing or sales or manufacturing. So they come with a great idea and a light bulb over their head and don't know the steps to go forward. The way we deal with them is more of an educational approach. I've done a bunch of videos. You can see them on our website in this regard because I get questions that are repeating very often. How do I do this? How do I do that? How's the world handle these things? I did videos with the help of my son, put them on our website so you can see them. There's probably 15 different videos there on how to do development. And those are for the entrepreneurs the startups. Then there's a, a mid-range client of ours who tends to have a lot of the infrastructure. They've done it before. They're very well funded. They're innovating in an area, maybe like telecom, creating 5G systems, which are a big part of our future. They know what they want and need us to execute on a very small piece of a big program. In the case of a, an entrepreneur or a small startup, they happen to need almost everything. So we educate and connect them with those resources and fill a lot of those gaps ourselves. In the case of the mid-range company, we see their gaps very specifically and they'll write up a statement of work for us, which is a rare thing with an entrepreneur. We follow that statement of work and address their needs as quickly and accurately as we can. And then hopefully they hire us again in the future. And that happens often. The Fortune 100 companies are yet different again. They have very large bureaucracies and they have gateways for small businesses like mine to get through before you can get work there. And without naming too many big companies, a number of them, once you get through what I call the gauntlet, their master service agreement requirements, that's the term often used. There's other names for it. Then you get on their approved list. Their pursuit of you is through internal means. So you get into their internal network. They look for that resource internally. They know who the approved vendors are and it shortens their delivery time for a service or a product they might procure. It's quite different. Okay. I guess going back a little bit further, can you talk a little bit about your company, what it actually does? Because I think there's a little gap there between we work with all these companies and this is actually what we do for these companies. Great question. Should have covered that sooner. As a mechanical engineering company, we do mostly product designs and equipment designs. Now, what's that mean? It could mean that we create an x-ray cancer therapy machine for a very large company that does that. They would create core technology and we would create all the components around it. For example, covers, electronic enclosures, cable designs, mechanisms, things that go like that. We do the industrial design, which is the aesthetics, look, feel image, ergonomics, usability, 
partners who do software and hardware, meaning electronic hardware. We do the mechanical hardware. Our resource team, there's 10 of us in my company, and there's up to 10 contractors work with us all the time. And so what we do is we figure out the gaps a customer has, and then we fill them with talented resources to meet their needs. To do that, we have a shop that makes things. We have a machine shop. We have a 3D printing room. Between those two, we create things that didn't exist before a hundred times a year at maximum. So far, we've done way over 1,400 projects and it's been a busy life just at Fusion. And our customers range, like we talked about, from one individual all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. The way it works is it's all through the network. We really don't have a billboard out on 237 or anything like that. Everything exists as a relationship from one person to the next. I hate to say it, but it's kind of like the virus spreading, right? It spreads by close contact. Well, I think business actually spreads the same way. Fortunately, business is a good thing where the virus obviously isn't. You talked about the executive team building their brand and being ambassadors. What are ways that a startup can get noticed online right now with all the massive amount of content out there? I have worked with a couple of early stage startups. We talk about those concepts. One of the things that we talk about was using viral marketing. You know how Dropbox, I know you've seen the Dropbox there early, early stage. Uh, they did a video that was, it was titled Dropbox Explain. Use a very unconventional way of creating the video. It was like a two minute thing. It used just cut out these paper stuff and stop motion kind of thing. So it's like a cartoony. It's not cartoony, but it's very interesting. There's a name for it, but I forgot. I actually watched it uh, not too long ago. It's different from video that you would see from a company actually using it outside professional production because those are way too professional for me. Do you have a viral video that could actually draw some attention to it? Put it on your website, send it out when you do your pitch. That's to every customer that you get in touch with and that's your foot in the door because a lot of times people get so inundated with information. I would just rather have watch a two-minute video so I get, oh yeah, I got the concept. That's it. And it was well explained. It tells exactly why you need to use Dropbox. How does one, through this, the video and that, how do they build an emotional connection with their customer? I mean, right now, everything I see online, is just flashes, it's there and it's done, but I don't feel that connection like I did maybe growing up where you'd see that hamburger, or that cereal ad or that, <laughs> where, you know, it'd make you so happy. But no, is there a way that a startup, an early stage company can build emotional connection between their product and the customer? I think that we're all humans. I think the best way is to really humanize your brand, right? When I say humanize your brand, I don't want to tack on what, what you said about, you know, when you see those commercials about the hamburgers that makes you <laughs> mouth watering. I want to say that create something that connects with the human emotions, whether it's a success story of someone that you help you know, through your product, tell a story. Storytelling is really powerful. Instead of selling features and widgets and make it really transactional, really reach deep inside, have the users tell the story and how your product helped them, right? In a way that lift them up, you know, help them be better or take them to a different place. Not just startups. I think even recently I saw a couple ads ran by, what is that health company? Blue Shield, right? I don't know if you caught it. It was, I think they started out last year in October, but I was on TV the other day and was watching it. They had two ads, one ad that talks about what is blue. 
it was a real simple ad. They have a theme song. I think it's on an American Dream. It was just a, a flash of showing what blue is and what blue is not. You'll get it. It's a simple text with imagery, and it just really pulls out the emotions. And then another one that they did was supporting the frontline workers, just reminding us not to forget about them. Because I think this COVID had impact so much. Sometimes we forget. And then when we're into trenches, we just forget things, right? And sometimes we have to be reminded again. I think those types of things that really touch on what's currently impacting us could also be emotional too. And one thing I wanted to add, you interviewed the show for a newspaper article and it's gotten a lot of attention. How can a startup reach out and get interviewed for articles? How can they get some media attention for them without paying the big dollars to a PR company? That's a good question. For startups, if you want to be interviewed by a publication, I think first you have to look at your product and what market you're in. Go and do a little bit of research, see uh, what publications, writing topics that closely related to your product. You should also make sure that your topic is kind of newsworthy, right? Because if you're a market providing product that is serving or solving immediate needs or a near future need, it meets the trend. Think about kind of the newsworthy angle, right? Is this the right timing for it? And also the right timing for your companies to get that kind of exposure. You know, I would say a lot of publications, the way there are group is there are local publications. There are publications that reach the regional level and also there's some that are national. So I think if you want to sort of uh, manage exposure a little bit, you could start with some local regional, go to the bigger ones as you get better. And when you look at publications, you should really study their editorial calendar. You know, they all have one that's on their website and kind of see what they focus on. Sometimes they might have topics that fit what you want to talk about or to be interviewed for. Uh, sometimes they don't. If you study, you could say, well, hey, I see you got this great audience and these great contents, but I'm seeing there's something that's missing. How about we, you make a proposal, right? How about we come and share this information? And that's how I got started with the Los Altos Town Crier two years ago. I was looking at the paper. There wasn't a column on marketing. So I pitched to the editor. He sent me to someone and then they came back and said, well, hey, you know, I think they're probably looking at my background and say, in addition to marketing, can you also include technology and also startup because you work with a lot of startups? I said, sure, let's blend all that in. It's interesting because it's just like you launching your podcast. I need to have an anchor guy to help me launch my first article. So I worked with Oscar Garcia. He was a former CEO of the Mount 2 Chamber of Commerce. So Oscar and I wrote an article about social media. You know, when you actually, when, also when you pitched the papers, is um, either it's, it's an article that you want them to interview you for uh, or something that you could write and you can also pitch to them. You can write an article and you can also pitch to them. So you'd mentioned calendars for it. So there's two questions there. The calendar for the newspaper and also social media calendars for startups. I've heard that term quite a bit. Could you talk about maybe what the differences of these calendars are, what the social media calendar is, and go into more detail? Okay, so the editorial calendar is actually for the press is to guide them so that they can focus what topic they could feature for the whole year. And usually these are prepared like six months or even to 12 months in advance. If you want to talk to them, you actually really should pitch to them like six months before they write that focus on that topic. I think the same thing could apply to social media, but I think social media calendar is much more dynamic. 
it needs to tie into your company marketing overall marketing strategies. Because I don't think you know, your marketing, of course, right now in the pandemic, we're all online. You know, digital media, social media is much has more care more weight. But in the non-COVID time, bringing back that brand building question that you asked earlier, also building that emotional connection is to make sure that your social media also calendar that calendar should also encompass some offline activities that enable you to engage with your audience offline. I think we miss trade shows. You know, we cannot go to trade shows anymore. We cannot go to networking happy hour anymore. So those FaceTimes are not there. Take those away and try to replace with social media. That digital touch is going to be a little bit different, right? I don't think your social media, your social media calendar should be set on a monthly basis because I think, and also a weekly basis, just depending on how complex of company or product portfolio that you have, right? I think if you have a you have a small company, you might have fewer products, it's easier to manage. But I think if you have multiple, I think laying out a social media calendar would benefit your team because you're gonna to need to assign people to focus on it. And depending on where you're playing, right, in social media channels, there's like up to 10, 20 different ones. I think the main ones is depending on if you are a BDB or a BDC company. LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, Reddit, some of those things are still are really relevant because they have eyeballs right now. They're really mature uh, channels. So I think you should have some allocated time to dedicate what topics you're going to focus on. Pick a topic. So let's, let's just say like hypothetically that if you want to plan out an annual social media calendar, probably should have certain topics that you focus on that's tied closely to your company's product roadmap. Because you want to focus on the products that you're going to bet on for the year, which one is going to drive revenue, right? You might have some new releases or you might have some established products that you still want to keep it there because they're still revenue drivers. And from there, just build your little social media calendar for each one of them. They might be overlapping between products, but I think if you have a little mini plan for each product line, decide on what channel you can focus on. Let's say, or just focus on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and then decide on what topics you're going to have and really kind of uh, stage out your, your post, determine the frequencies, how often you post. And make sure when you post, don't run. I think when you do get involved with social media, right? Engage. I favor more engagement than like just posting and hoping to have likes versus really engage with your audience and with your followers. So companies, you know, normally are they're accelerating or dive bombing, or at least like kind of how it seems in the startup world. When they're dive bombing, is that when they're typically missing their taxes? And how much more does this accelerate the problem? You know, it's actually more missing your taxes is more of a symptom than a cause. I would say it's a, it's a signal that there's not enough institutional control and emphasis put on like having a healthy organization and a healthy culture. So when I see companies that are doing that, I know they need to make a cultural shift. A company that's dive bombing is usually dive bombing because they raised a lot of money and the dogs are not eating the dog food or maybe they grew too fast. Like you're seeing with a lot of the soft bank companies right now, like they just, they took something and tried to hyperscale it in a way that just wasn't going to work or didn't work. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of money that's been wasted. And so those companies usually 
probably had pretty good institutional control before, but then they tried to go to like another level of growth and they couldn't handle it. Like the organization could not handle growing that fast and absorbing that much capital. So that's kind of like the company, you have to kind of be careful what you ask for in terms of raising a bunch of money and growing really fast because most companies cannot handle that. It's rare to have a Facebook that can actually, like Mark Zuckerberg held that place together with tape, but he did it. Now they're incredible. There's not too many companies that can absorb that. But one symptom of not having strong organizational control and culture is like really missing your financials or missing your projections or not doing your taxes, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about what venture debt is and maybe some advice or best practices in that area? Yeah, so venture debt is a complement to venture capital equity. And so the typical use case is a startup will go out and raise, you know, five million or ten million dollars in equity in preferred shares. And so those investors have put in money that doesn't need to be paid back. It's equity. They own part of the company. And a nice little complement to that would be getting a little bit of extra money in the form of debt because it's less dilutive to help lengthen the company's runway. In the startup world, you're all about hitting your milestones. So when you pitch a VC, you're probably saying, hey, in 18 to 24 months, I'm going to hit X, Y, and Z milestones. So for a SaaS company, it might be 10 paying customers. For a consumer company, it might be a million users or something like that. There's something that everyone's going to look at and decide that this company is worth funding and the, and the next venture capitalists are going to come in. Well, not hitting your milestones is really, really painful because the insiders have to keep funding the company, which they don't want to do, or they may just throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to fund the company anymore and it goes out of business, right? So if you're a savvy entrepreneur and savvy VC, having a little bit of extra runway, a little cushion or an insurance policy in the form of venture debt is pretty powerful. And typically the terms on venture debt, there's kind of two buckets of venture debt, but usually it's you give up a little tiny bit of equity, like 25 basis points or 50 basis points in the company. So kind of what you'd give like a director level employee at your company. So not a lot. And then you're agreeing to pay interest and principal back over time to get the lender back their money and to drive an interest return for the lender. The lender is excited because if this turns out to be a Facebook or a really big one, then that equity, even though it's not a lot, is going to be really, really valuable. So the, the firm that did Facebook, WTI, I think made two or $300 million on $2 million loans. But that equity kick was so high that it made, it made their fund. And so there's lots of stories like that. Google, Juniper, we've done some at Lighthouse, did some really huge ones. It was really awesome. But you also are sometimes going to lose money as a lender because not all startups hit their milestones. Not all companies can actually raise the next round. So some of those equity pops are also going to offset losses. But from a founder's perspective, the great thing about it is it's less dilutive than equity. You probably sold 20% of your company to get whatever amount of capital you just raised in equity. This, you're selling 25 basis points or 50 basis points. So very, very small amount. But you are trading off. The lender will have the senior lien on the company. So they get all their money out first before the investors get their money out and, the, and before the common starts participating. And they're going to just be a little bit less flexible than an equity investor would be. But in all in all, I recommend that companies do venture debt. And we can talk about some of the ratios that you should think about and some of the pricing if you like. Yeah, actually, I would like to talk about that. But I'd also like to ask if they're in first position with the lien, what is the lien on? Is it on IP? Because a startup probably wouldn't have many assets. So that's an awesome question. And you're exactly right. Startup doesn't have that many assets, but they are developing something interesting intellectual property wise. And so you will typically get a lien on all the assets. Sometimes the startups negotiate a what's called a negative pledge lien on the IP, meaning 
the lender doesn't have the lien on the IP, but no one does. And so it's a little bit of inside baseball here, but when there's an asset that doesn't have a direct lien on it, like IP in this situation, then when there's a liquidation of the company and that company's assets, all the creditors participate in the proceeds of that specific asset with no lien on it in a pro rata way. So say lender has $2 million outstanding and there's another $200,000 of payables, like the gardener and the accounting firm and the bakery down the street that does the weekly cupcakes and whatever else you can think of that you might owe money as a company. Well, the total pool of unsecured creditor claims then would be $2.2 million, 2 million plus the 200,000 unsecured. And then that means that the lenders, the venture lenders would participate on a 10 to 11 percent rate, 10 to 11 ratio of the proceeds. So essentially every $9 out of every 10 on the proceeds of that IP would actually go to the lender, even though they weren't secured in that specific asset. Because they're going to be the biggest lender in the company by a lot, usually, they're still going to get most of the proceeds on the intellectual property. This is one of those ones where it's like a lot easier when you're looking at a spreadsheet and you can actually just see the numbers. But the big takeaway is the venture lender is going to benefit the most and by far the most from any liquidation of the assets, far and beyond any other creditor. And until the venture lender is actually paid back, the venture capitalists and their preferred equity and the common, which is usually the management team and the founders, are not going to participate at all. So you got to clear that debt. Like if you sell your company for $5 million, but you only you have $5 million of venture debt outstanding, then the equity folks and the common equity are not going to get anything. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.